you are listening to My City, My Health, the podcast. Welcome to the Healthy Project Podcast, My City, My Health edition. Today, I am your host, Jillian Reedy, and I am a student at the University of Iowa getting my bachelor's in health studies and a minor in psychology. My classmates and I are supporting the My City, My Health conference in Iowa City on April 28th, 2023, that brings University of Iowa and Iowa City Corridor community together to discuss health equity programs and collaborations. Registration is now open at mycity.health. Today, I get to interview Dr. Jody Tate and highlight her work in healthcare and health equity. I'm excited for this conversation. I think you will be too. So let's get started. Dr. Tate, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. So personally, I'm uh, married. Um, my spouse is a social worker by training and staying home with the kids. Um, and I have two kids. They are 18 and 15, uh, two wild, fun boys, very big boys, um, who apparently greet each other now with a wrestling tournament. That's how they say hi to each other. And a dog. Um, so, and I like to hike and read and spend time with my family. So that's me personally. Professionally, I uh, work with um, my area of expertise is working with adults with intellectual disability and mental illness and challenging behavior. I'm very, very passionate about that uh, population. And I can tell you a little bit more about that uh, in a minute. But um, I consider myself a clinician at heart, a clinician educator. And along the way, I somehow became a, I call myself an accidental administrator. So I was the, the vice chair for clinical services in our department for a little over a decade. And now I'm focusing on um, education. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. So can you kind of talk to me about what, what gets you up in the morning? What is your why each day? Oh, well, I am extremely passionate about advocating for patients, especially underserved populations and improving um, systems of care and health and equity. I would say that that is my big motivator in terms of my, my career. Yeah, that's awesome. Can you tell me a little bit of, um, more about what you mean by advocating for patients and health equity? Yeah, so maybe I'll go back a little bit in, in talk a little bit about how I got into working with this population and that might that might help a little bit. So, you know, when I I just went to med school because I was good at math and science. And so there was nothing altruistic about me going to med school. It was like, well, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I, and so I went into psychiatry and I didn't even I mean I went into med school and I had no idea what a psychiatrist was. And I was in a class and uh, the professor was talking about this great book called Darkness Visible. It's about this author who um, struggled with depression. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder what that book is. So I went out and bought that book. And does someone buy a book when you're in your first or second year of medical school just to read for fun that you don't get tested on? It's kind of like, hmm, maybe I like this. So I started learning more and more about mental illness and, and the health disparities and blatant discrimination and stigma against folks with mental illness. And I just became outraged and wanted to not only improve care to, to, to that population, uh, but to advocate for them. And additionally, I just fell in love with the field of psychiatry and working with people with mental illness. 
So I came, I went to my psychiatry residency and I came with that advocacy stance and my goal was to be a community psychiatrist and work with chronically mentally ill folks. And when I went through my training at medical school and residency, I got very little to no education on how to provide care to folks with intellectual disability. And I got out of residency and somehow started seeing folks, adults with ID. And I just, I always feel a little embarrassed to say this, but I always, I just say I fell in love with the population and um, selfishly, I was happy every time I, I met uh, with a patient who had an intellectual disability and um, just made me feel good and feel happy. But I realized I had absolutely no idea what I was doing because I didn't get any education and I didn't get any training on how to work with folks with ID. And, and so I started doing a lot of reading and educating myself and found out that I was normal, that we do a horrible job in the United States of training all healthcare providers, nurses, dietitians, physicians on how to um, work with this population. And so I took my initial outrage from the stigma of folks with mental illness, and then you add having a mental illness and an intellectual disability, and those folks are even kind of shunned from the mental illness world. So then I'm like, this is wrong. We need to fix that. So that is how I define health inequity is a population of patients who are kind of outcasts from all our kind of systems of care. And there's a lot of reasons for that. So that my whole career has been trying to improve healthcare for folks with, with intellectual disability. So it sounds like psychiatry wasn't always something that you were thinking of going into. It did kind of fall into your lap because that is what inspired you. And so can you tell us more about these patients that you see with both intellectual disabilities and mental disorders? Yeah, so I work with adults. I'm not a child psychiatrist, so if kids scare me, doesn't matter what. <laughs> but um, so in psychiatry, the way we make diagnoses, there aren't any specific blood tests to say, oh, you have depression, or oh, you have schizophrenia, or oh, you have bipolar. We get that history through asking questions of both the patient and their family or people that are close to them. And um, we make the diagnosis based on information that we receive and also observing the patient and ruling out other illnesses. And when you're working with folks with ID, there is off, they often have challenges with communication and uh, there's also challenges with you know, how they express or describe symptoms that they're having. And so illnesses can present differently in this population. And in fact, the world in psychiatry, there's a manual called the DSM, which is essentially a manual that lays out all the diagnostic criteria for certain mental illnesses. And because they can present differently in people with ID, um, there is a DSM specifically for this population called the DMID. And so it's really important to be aware of the differences and aware of how things can um, present differently in folks with ID. And that's not just with mental illness, it's with physical illness as well. So oftentimes people with ID often have a very high pain tolerance. So if you or I 
uh, were having appendicitis, we would be having significant pain in our left quadrant. Somebody with ID might not experience pain that way, and it, they might not feel it, or they might not know how to express it, so they might, you know, get agitated and upset. And that leads to high mortality and morbidity in this population because we miss things, because we don't know how they present. I once had a patient who fractured his femur, which is the upper thigh bone, which you or I would be laying on the back ground, not able to walk or talk probably. He was walking on it and it was missed because he walked on it. He didn't experience pain the same way that you or I experienced pain. But doctors don't know that and nurses don't know that. So we miss stuff all the time. And so this population gets bad health care. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but a big reason is because as a physician or as a healthcare provider, we aren't trained. That is something that I never knew. I never knew that patients with ID experience pain differently. And I know breaking the femur is supposed to be one of the hardest bones to break in your body. And so the fact that that patient was still walking and talking is, is insane. And so it sounds like these patients, they aren't as well understood by a lot of practitioners. And so I guess going into my next question, how can you go about increasing health literacy for these patients who aren't as well understood by practitioners? And also, how can you increase health literacy for their loved ones and the people around them? Education, increasing awareness, advocacy. And so we've been trying to, to do that. So we've created um, educational opportunities for medical students and PA students. Um, we created an interdisciplinary team that has medical, behavioral, psychiatric, and speech pathology to, to, to try to provide comprehensive care. We routinely reach out to other providers that care for this population to try to collaborate and, and increase awareness. In terms of community, do presentations and education to community organizations to increase understanding of how medical or psychiatric illnesses present in this population. Yeah, it sounds like the route right now is just increasing education for for the practitioners mm -hmm. and for and for the patients as well. And then how do you kind of go about educating and communicating with these patients who have these intellectual disabilities or mental disorders? What is like your method of communication? Yeah, that varies. It varies on the individual and their level of understanding and comprehension. So oftentimes people with intellectual disability are able to, and I'm generalizing, you know, that just, I just want to say that I am generalizing that we are all unique individuals with our unique strengths and weaknesses. And that applies people with or without ID. So I am doing a massive generalization, but oftentimes somebody who has an intellectual disability, their ability to understand what someone is saying is higher than their ability to respond. So I always assume that the person I'm working with is understanding what I'm saying. And so I work very hard to make sure that I'm communicating with the individual with ID. And that is something that holds true in medicine and outside of medicine. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that piece, communicating with folks with ID. So oftentimes in the healthcare world, when somebody comes in, adults, I'm just talking about adults here with ID, they're with somebody, they're with a parent or they're with a care provider. 
and they'll come into the doctor's office or the practitioner's office and they will me as the provider i will look at you and i will not i will look at you and avoid the patient because i am assuming oh well they don't really have anything to tell me because they can't talk to me so and the patient knows that and gets that and it's awful and it feels awful so my recommendation to all clinicians and all people is look at the individual and talk to the individual and develop rapport with the individual and if they're nonverbal and they can't talk that's okay you can do a high five you can still have a conversation and and then i always ask the patient permission if i can talk with whoever they brought in with them today and that's doing a variety of things first of all it's showing the patient that i am here for them it's also telling the care providers or the parents that i'm there for the patient some people are nonverbal some people are verbal some people can communicate via typing or by pointing to pictures. Um, so it just varies. Yeah. And I feel like that, that connects really well with the next question I was going to ask. And it's, you work with unique population. And mm-hmm. so um, establishing rapport and building, building a relationship with this patient is not as traditional as it would normally be. And mm-hmm. so can you highlight why building rapport is so important for this population and how mm-hmm. how you kind of go about that. Well, and building rapport as a clinician is important for all patients. So, you know, I can speak for myself as a patient. If I go to a provider and they tell me to do X, Y, and Z, I may or may not do it, right? <laughs> so I think probably the most important thing as a clinician, as a senior physician is developing rapport so that the person will trust you and that you can develop this relationship so that will help you know the individual better, will help you make better diagnoses and work together to figure out a treatment plan moving forward. So it's important for respect of the individual. It's important for making a good diagnosis and it's important for developing a treatment plan and implementing that treatment plan. Yeah. And I feel like that even ties back to, you said the, the DMID, I think it was called, um, Mm -hmm. making diagnosis just based on what is communicated to you and having a relationship, I feel like definitely can give you a better overall picture and being more accurate Mm -hmm. for that client. So then circling back a little bit to health equity, your work as a whole, how have you personally gone about promoting health equity for your peers and for psychiatry as a whole? Well, lots and lots of education or lots of advocacy. I advocate for patients and populations on an individual level and on a larger level, state level, trying to change care delivery and community support and payment and funding. And so those are the biggest ways that I've gone about trying to improve highlighted how important education is and so that alone Mm -hmm. is is a huge step Mm -hmm. and and yeah and I feel like improvements can still be made every day and then so right now are there any projects or studies that you're working on at the University of Iowa whether it's related to health equity or whether it's related to anything else that you're doing well I mean I've talked a lot about what I've worked on with folks with intellectual disability and one of the things I didn't mention and I'm not 
specifically involved with this, but a, a group of folks are that part of this team. ECT, so ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, is a treatment to treat refractory depression and some other illnesses, but mostly refractory depression. And it is underused in folks with ID. It wasn't until the 1980s that actually the field of psychiatry acknowledged that folks with ID can have a mental illness. And so it's, if you can't have a mental illness, then you'd never need ECT, right? And there's, there's lots of challenges and different opinions about, about ECT. But we provide ECT to folks with ID who meet the criteria for, for ECT. And right now we're in the process of, we is a global term, not me, group of folks, um, uh, writing up, doing a study on ECT and folks with ID to disseminate that knowledge and information. So that was a, that's another piece of the ID. So with my other hat, my, I told you I was an accidental administrator. So in my clinical leadership role, we opened a crisis stabilization unit. And part of opening that is we got feedback from patients about what went well, what didn't go well. And one patient wrote in that she wished that she would have had a comb for her hair. This patient was black. And I'm like, well, why don't we have combs for her hair? And the privileged entitled person that I am just assumed that we had hair supplies for folks with tightly curled or coiled hair. And lo and behold, we did not. Um, the whole institution did not. So that started, again, rage in me. But a, a small interdisciplinary group got together and three or four years later, however long that took, because COVID kind of flopped in the middle of that, we now have inclusive hair and beard products across the hospital. And that was an embarrassingly challenging and humiliating experience. Number one, because I wasn't aware. Number two, the country isn't aware. We couldn't find any hospital back then that offered inclusive hair and beard products to folks with um, curled or coiled hair. Not everybody with that hair type is black, but the majority of folks. But we couldn't find a hospital that offered them. We couldn't find a distributing company that offered them to a hospital. So this took a massive amount of work. So we did an education campaign across the hospital to get the word out. And so now they're out. So it's been awesome experience, um, embarrassing experience, but hopefully patients now that have curly or coiled hair will feel valued because they have shampoo and conditioner <laughs> and a razor that they can use. Yeah, I feel like I feel like that's so important because that is not something that I would think of either. I would not be thinking of a comb or anything as needing to have multiple to be inclusive and that's why I feel like these conversations are so important to raise awareness because we will find something out next week or next year that we can also work on. And so I feel like that that definitely is a very important conversation and experience. So leading into what we're going to accomplish in April at the My City, My Health yeah. Conference, what do you kind of hope to accomplish in April? Well, we're going to talk about this project that I just talked about, the inclusive hair and beard products. And, and I love that this conference is about communicating and talking because I think that's so important. And I learned so much through this process of getting these 
you know, hair and beard supplies. And my cohort, two of us kind of took the, the lead on this, Tanya Ferguson, who's a dermatologist, and she's black. And I remember when I first talked with her about this, she wasn't enraged. She was like, oh, yeah, I have to bring my own shampoo and use it to a hotel or wherever I go. It's just kind of like common. That's just what you do. And me, I'm like, if I went to a hotel and I didn't have my shampoo, I'd be really upset. You know, so this how privilege is so insidious. And, and so just talking about things to open our eyes, things we never, we don't see. So it's so important. So that's, I think that would be a great outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the foundation of, it's foundation of the conference is building connections and starting conversations. So, and then how can people in the Iowa City area community or beyond get involved with you and your work? Well, if anybody wants to email me or call me, I'm happy to collaborate and work with whoever. (laughs) Um, You know, my work with folks with ID is, you know, I'm a clinician, so providing clinical care, but, you know, I'll do community and uh, advocacy as well. And so happy to to collaborate with anyone. And and we've had a lot of interest in our um, inclusive hair and beard product program. And, you know, I am, I just send them all the stuff that we have. So I'm willing to share any and all of our materials to help. Yeah. And what is, what is the best way of, of contacting you? Probably email. And you, I think you can find the email just by Googling at UIHC. So, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm really excited to see what, what you can accomplish and what we all can accomplish at the My City, My Health conference in April. Do you have any final thoughts? Well, thank you for doing this podcast. I think it's so awesome. And I love the mission of this project. It's so important. So power to you young people to change the world. It is a lot of work. Thank you so much. If you're interested in learning more about the My City, My Health Iowa City Conference, visit mycity.health. Thank you, Dr. Tate, for your time today. And thank you, listeners, for joining me today. Check out more of the Healthy Project podcast, My City, My Health edition on the mycity.health website. Thank you. Thank you.